by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about how sanctions on Russia uh, delivered by the West is impacting the global food crisis. Also going to be talking about how the Biden administration is poised to send tens of billions of dollars to weaponize space. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Garland Nixon, co-host of The Critical hour, which you can hear from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on Radio Sputnik. Garland, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for inviting me. Well, Garland, uh, CNN uh, recently published uh, a piece about Radio Sputnik entitled Two U.S. Cities Host Russia-Backed Media Station That Spreads War Propaganda. And the two cities that it was referencing, of course, was here in Washington, D.C. and in Kansas City, where uh, uh, Sputnik also broadcast. And, you know, in the piece, Alex Marquardt, who is the person who put this together, says that that when he reached out to a host on Radio Sputnik, um, that he uh, that either he got no response or that they refused to come on. Now, this cat sent me a message on Instagram asking me to be a part of this, and I just deleted it. You know, I, I had no interest. But actually, uh, you had something of an exchange with him, I believe, uh, Garland. And how did that go? Well, um, it was on um, Facebook, and he sent me a message that said, you know, we'd like you to come on. Um, we're doing a, a piece about. Um, about Radio Sputnik and we'd like to interview you. And I said, certainly. I said, however... I will do it as long as it's live because I have um, some concerns that um, I said I've had experience in the past with misleading editing and I would have that concern as long as it's live. I'd be happy to do it. And then he sent something back that said, well, no, we're not going to do it because it's not going to be a live, live or whatever. So their um, assertion that they reached out and it was refused. My exact answer was certainly that ain't a refusal. Now right. he could say maybe that it didn't work out or we couldn't do it, but the idea, but the, the the concept that it was flat out refused, it kind of implies that we had something to hide, and I think that was the intent in a hit piece. Yeah, and I got to say, for me, having watched it a, a couple times, it seems pretty clear that the real question in the uh, uh, that the piece is really posing is basically why is Radio Sputnik allowed to continue to broadcast in the United States? And as people will remember, uh, uh, Russian state media has been uh, deplatformed in a number of ways in uh, the United States and in Europe. I mean, I believe that RT and Sputnik are completely blocked in Europe. And I know here in the U.S., uh, Radio Sputnik has been um, uh, deplatformed off of major uh, uh, podcast platforms. We've been kicked off YouTube. As a matter of fact, it was a political journalist named Haley Futches that literally admitted that she went to YouTube and got the by any means necessary and political misfits channels taken down. And uh, I believe also went to, to Podbean uh, to get our uh, uh, podcast taken down off of there. And so it, it really feels like this is part of an attempt to 
try to, frankly, finish the job and to try to get uh, Radio Sputnik and really other um, sort of uh, uh, dissenting media, if you will, alternative media to try to keep people from being able to access it, to hear um, alternative views on the war in Ukraine or a number of things. And I have to laugh at the at this headline that says that Radio Sputnik is spreading war propaganda. There is no media apparatus more warlike than the corporate media apparatus in the United States. And to me, it's a joke that when we go on social media that, uh, you know, platforms like Sputnik or Press TV uh, in Iran or, say, CGTN in China has to, you know, have this label of a state affiliated media, affiliated media as if corporate media in the U.S. isn't a revolving door of the military and the intelligence uh, community. I mean, Jen Psaki, the, the White House press secretary, is set to go to MSNBC soon. And so the U.S. likes to pretend that it has a quote unquote free press and that, you know, state media is just a bunch of propaganda. But considering how the U.S. media has been pushing so hard for this war in Ukraine, has been pushing for things like a no fly zone and even attack Joe Biden for not being sufficiently warlike at one point. I mean, you know, the hypocrisy just abounds, I think, in a number of ways, Garland. And, and you know, even if they had said, you know, as, as much as a, of a lie as a headline, if they'd have said spreads anti-war propaganda, they'd at least have been a little bit close right. because you don't have people on here saying, hey, this country should be going to war with that country. Hooray, more right. war. Even the people here, such as myself, for the most part, say, when we look at Ukraine, all of us would prefer that there was no war. Right. We would prefer that there's no, we all prefer no war. However, when there is a military interaction somewhere on, the, on, the, on this planet, we try to understand it. We try to explain what precipitated it so that hopefully we can figure out how not to have that happen in the future and also how to um, understand the dynamics that created that so we can all move towards a planet with less of this. So it's what's interesting to me is the most interesting and revealing statement that was made was Anderson Cooper said they're reveal sowing doubt. And he said, which is, you know, this is a big part of disinformation, doubt, which implies something very clear, doesn't it? You're not supposed to doubt the narrative of the U.S. State Department and the U.S. military. We're sowing doubt. God forbid. One thing we know, CNN will never sow doubt of what the <laughs> Pentagon, the intelligence right. community and the secretary, uh, the, the, uh, the excuse me, the State Department says. Well, I'm sorry if you're going to tell me that I'm guilty of something by sowing doubt into the, um, the proclamations and assertions of the neocons and the warmongers in this country and any other country, guilty as charged, I'm trying to sow doubt. And I think the healthy thing to do is to at least have some doubt. We're just supposed to believe it without doubt. It's kind of, um, I'll just say this, quite revealing. Yeah, and you know, what I've been saying on the show, Garland, is that the United States seems to think that propaganda is only something that the bad guys do. Right. It's only it's something that only the countries that the U.S. deems as its um, enemies actually engage in. And so in this context, when CNN talks about war propaganda, what they're really saying is, is that on a, a radio Sputnik, we don't support, uh, you know, uh, we don't support the United States or Pentagon line in the way that they've instigated and are continuing the war in Ukraine with the billions and billions of dollars that the U.S. government is sending that will just prolong 
prolong the conflict and deepen the suffering of the Ukraine people. Now, if we were to support that, then I guess that's fine. That's not propaganda, right? It's perfectly fine to support U.S. and the spread of NATO, which has never been a defensive or, or peaceful organization from the time it began in 1949. It has always been about expanding across the globe and encircling countries like Russia that the United States uh, 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 seeks to uh, sort of um, malign and marginalize in an attempt for the U.S. to uh, uh, basically keep the unipolar world and to keep U.S. world hegemony intact. And so from the standpoint of by any means necessary, we've consistently had an anti-war and anti-imperialist perspective for the entirety of uh, the show's existence, even before I was on the show. And so whether we're talking about Iran or, or North Korea or Syria, or whether we're talking about sanctions against countries like Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and others, the fact of the matter is, is that um, on Radio Sputnik, you will find really a kind of a range of, uh, of opinions and perspectives. But what you will uh, uh, also find is a perspective that goes against um, the line being put forth by the White House and by uh, the U.S. corporate-owned media. And even though the U.S. likes to pretend that it has this free press, what it's really doing by deplatforming and attacking um, uh, uh, media platforms like Radio Sputnik, you're actually robbing the American people of the ability to make an informed choice about what they think. And this goes back to what you were saying about uh, a sowing doubt. So in other words, they're upset that like we won't just let people continue to just uh, uh, uncritically imbibe what they get from, you know, the U.S. military uh, industrial complex and these media platforms that perform at their service. And so these people that call themselves journalists, to me, they're just they're stenographers for imperialism and capitalism. And then when they uh, encounter content that goes against that, well, then they cry foul. And supposedly we're the ones that are supporting war crimes when the U.S. is committing, has committed and is committing war crimes right up until this very moment. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I think that we do on week, you know, I listen to your show and I know you've listened to the various platforms and I've I've, you know, listen to you speak outside of Radio Sputnik. And the one thing that we push is a nuanced critical thinking. Right. Right. OK. You know, if the White House or the secretary of the State Department, whoever they want to put forth a particular narrative, that's fair enough. I don't say they should shut up. But however, there should be somebody saying, I'm going to look at that narrative and I'm going to critically evaluate it. You've made some assertions. Are they true or false? Let's look at the facts that would support or that would um, discredit your assertions. Simple critical thinking. Right. But that's what, in my opinion, they're trying to stop. That's all we're really doing. Garland Nixon, Sean, any of the people on here, Dr. Wilmer, if they said to us, well, come on CNN or MSNBC tomorrow and we're going to make some assertions about Ukraine and you're help, you're perfectly um, welcome to make you to, to do some pushback. There's none of us that would say no. But they, you know, to, to say, I'm going to bring you on and I'm going to do a recording of you. And then I will, you know, I will just like edit out where you said this, the word yes. And then I'll ask any question I want. What do you think, Garland? Yes. Oh, there we go. We got it. And that's I, and, and so I think what it gets down to is this. The general versus the specific, because right. they make general assertions. You are pushing propaganda. The specific. Give me an example. 
of something that I said that was untrue. You can call it propaganda, but what did I say that was untrue? They went on to say, mention in that the latest, the buka or bucha, whatever it is, the assertions of war crimes. Okay, that's fair enough. I don't say you can't make that assertion that either side committed war crimes. It's a war. People die. That's a discussion that's fair to have. However, what they're saying is we're going to say Russia killed all of these people. And we and if someone comes on and says, well, I can present some facts, I can present some assertions, I can present some evidence that may discredit that or may cause one to question those. No, we only want to hear one side. Here's the thing that kills me. What they're saying is two things. Number one, people should only hear our side of the argument. Right. Number two, the other side of the argument is all lies and propaganda, and you have to trust us to make that evaluation. We are judge, jury, and advocate, where what we're arguing is the listener should be the jury. You can be the, the judge and the advocate. You can say, I'm right, and I'm going to defend it. But the listener should be able to be the jury and say, I'm going to decide they don't want they want to be all three of them and just present their case to the to the to the to the people and have them accepted uncritically. And none of us are willing to do that. Yeah. And you mentioned your co-host, Dr. Wilma Leon. They actually played a clip of Dr. Leon, as you mentioned, about his um, analysis and really his questions around uh, the narrative coming out around Bucha. And this is what we mean when we talk about nuance. And I have a similar feeling about uh the Butcher situation to Wilma Leon in the sense that we actually don't know really what happened. But to say that we actually don't know because the fog of war spreads rapidly and in all directions, that is not a denial of one or the other. It is to simply say that we are in a moment where it can be difficult to know what's happening in a number of ways. But see, the U.S. media isn't interested in that. They just want to push a Russia bad, Ukraine good narrative without any kind Context without any sort of um, historical understanding about what even led up to this point. It just has to be about Russia creating war crimes. But to ask the question is not to deny the guilt of Russia or Ukraine or anyone else. It's simply to make the statement that we should uh, uh, be critical of these uh, narratives that we see and should continue to really push um, for a, a, a truthful examination of the whole thing. But you see, when, when you begin to raise the uh, uh, issues, Garland, when you begin to talk about what the U.S. has done and is doing around the world and, and these imperialist wars that has caused incredible devastation for people across the globe, you're accused of uh, whataboutism. Right. And so you're not even allowed. It is verboten to raise relevant context. And it's clearly because that the um, uh, uh, U.S. corporate owned press is aiding the U.S. government in softening up the American people to support the government in its war drives and its support for the war in Ukraine and in its war drive all across the globe. And I think that that is really uh, uh, the key piece for me is that while we're being accused of war propaganda, in reality, it's the U.S. Uh, uh, mainstream press that is more 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 warlike than anyone. And, uh, and I'll say this and it. And here's the really nasty part of it to me, the insidious part of what they're doing. They are making it clear we support Ukraine. But then they're trying to pretend like we're supposed to accept them as unbiased purely objective observers when it comes to evaluating the assertions. So you say we're on this side. We're on the side of the Ukrainian government. And 
we're unbiased. You can trust us to evaluate all of the assertions made by the Ukrainian government, but every assertion that they make, we're going to support and we're going to be valid. Oh, by the way, those people over there, because they question these uh, assertions, they're unbiased. You're only unbiased if you accept every one of the assertions. Their arguments are preposterous. Yeah. And I mean, anyone who listens to By Enemies Necessary knows I've never claimed to be uh, an unbiased party. I think I've, you know, made my own uh, 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 politics and the point of my analysis very, very clear. And uh, I make no secret of that. But when you pretend uh, to be this sort of disinterested, objective observer and then do the opposite, well, then you cannot rightly call yourself a journalist. You are a stenographer for uh, the U.S. capitalist imperialist state. Well, we thank you so much, Garland Nixon, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how uh, Western sanctions against Russia uh, impact global food deficits. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Abayomi Azikiwe, editor of the Pan-African Newswire. Abayomi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. And Abayomi, uh, in the time since uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, Russia's invasion into Ukraine, we've seen uh, a number of uh, sanctions uh, in, in, in an intensifying way being aimed at the Russian government. And the U.S. government is framing these sanctions as something that uh, really is supposed to impact, you know, Russian government officials and uh, and no one else. But what, of course, that leaves out is the way that these sanctions can impact conditions for people inside the United States and in uh, different parts of the world as uh, there's a connection between these sanctions and rising prices of uh, uh, essential products like fuel and food and, and things like this. And you recently published a piece about this for uh, newsgana.com entitled Western Sanctions Against Russia Creates Food Deficits Globally. So I was hoping you could help us understand how are uh, Western sanctions against Russia connected to um, uh, this issue of food that we're seeing around the globe? And what are the real impacts? Well, thank you, uh, first of all, uh, for examining and exploring uh, this question, because if you watch the Western uh, mainstream uh, corporate and government controlled media, they try to make it appear as if, uh, as you said, the sanctions are only harming people in Russia. Uh, that is, could be further from the truth than anything else. Uh, what is going on is that people here in the United States are suffering immensely. Uh, part of it has to do with the uh, impact of the pandemic. Uh, we had uh, huge uh, dislocations in the labor market. Uh, businesses have closed. Uh, people are retiring. They're re uh, resigning from their jobs. Uh, workers are striking. Uh, in key industries, uh, for example, the Kellogg's Corporation, 
uh, even here in the state of Michigan, uh, where I live, uh, had a huge strike uh, last year. Uh, the agricultural uh, sector has seen uh, disruptions uh, due uh, to the problems associated with the cost of fuel and operating among truckers and among other uh, cargo uh, delivery uh, sectors of the economy. So this is a worldwide problem. And uh, the Biden administration, unfortunately, is using this in an attempt to show up uh, political and electoral support for the Democratic Party, because this is an election year, it's a midterm election. And unfortunately, uh, they don't see the implications of their policies uh, in Ukraine, uh, towards Russia and other countries. So, for example, uh, Russia and Ukraine supply a huge amount of the agricultural and food supply to several geopolitical regions around the world, uh, first of all, within their own uh, countries. And after that, of course, in Africa, and uh, I tried to point this out in the article, that a number of countries uh, have substantial imports of uh, Russian food products, for example, wheat, um, the the fertilizer, which are inputs uh, for agricultural production, also uh, uh, farming machinery as well, Um, tractors and other forms of uh, agricultural uh, uh, mechanism, uh, mechanics that uh, are are central for modern-day food production. So this is a a program that the Biden administration has embarked upon, which, uh, in fact, is not being correctly uh, analyzed and reported uh, in the U.S. media, but it is having an extreme impact uh, in Africa, uh, in uh, the Middle East or West Asia, and in Europe, and also here in the United States. All you have to do is go uh, to the supermarket, uh, go to other retail outlets, and you can see the shortages. You can see the increase in prices. And uh, they're not even acknowledging that the crisis exists. In fact, um, most of the propaganda that we hear coming out of the Biden administration is against Russia. A lot of it is false. Um, They are making allegations, you know, about uh, genocide, which they brought up uh, just yesterday, then the, then the, his press secretaries have to come behind him and say, oh, he really didn't mean that, or he was speaking as an individual. I mean, those are serious issues that we're dealing with. We're talking about wheat imports. Uh, we're talking about staple foods that impact hundreds of millions of people, and they've imposed sanctions, which makes it more difficult uh, for people to engage in transactions, to purchase food, uh, to purchase uh, agricultural imports, uh, inputs, and also uh, to uh, deal with uh, agricultural machinery. This is essential uh, for any developing state, and even advanced capitalist countries uh, are dealing with this crisis. So they're not being honest, uh, they're being deceptive, and it's having an impact on billion, literally billions of people around the world. Yeah, and... You know, on that note about um, how different countries on the African continent are being impacted by this and oriented um, toward this, Abayomi, in terms of their relationship with Russia. I mean, do you think that this is at least a part of the reason why uh, some countries on the African continent, if we look at how uh, those governments are responding to the war in Ukraine, uh, why it seems uh, it seems to be pretty mixed, uh, which I think is uh, disappointing to uh, the powers inside Washington. I mean, I'm looking at a piece on Reuters that was discussing the recent U.N. General Assembly um, 
um, a vote to remove Russia from the U.N. Human Rights Council and nine African nations voted against uh, 23 abstained. Eleven didn't vote. And it looks like 11 supported it. And so, you know, that's not uh, really a sort of a consistent um, sort of uh, uh, pattern, if you will, across a continent that is itself uh, quite diverse in a number of ways. But I mean, do you think it's uh, some of these different countries relationship to uh, the Moscow government that maybe makes for a more complicated picture than perhaps the West would like as it tries to continue to develop this, you know, united front against Russia? Yeah, they're trying to mobilize particularly uh, within the so-called developing countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Caribbean, and even among oppressed communities within the capitalist states themselves. Even here in the United States, if you watch the uh, mainstream corporate television networks, uh, even the entertainment shows, it's like it's scripted. Uh, Even if African-Americans are hosting these shows, they have to uh, allocate a substantial portion of their programs to denouncing Russia, denouncing the Russian leadership, and uh, to solicit support uh, for the Ukrainian uh, so-called resistance against uh, Russian aggression. The the Russian government has described this as a special military operation, but they don't want to go back to 2014. They don't want to go back to 1991 uh, when uh, NATO, uh, when the United States uh, had made gestures in regard to not expanding the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And uh, they're utilizing this struggle that's going on right now in Ukraine to actually uh, uh, challenge this, the, the neutrality and the sovereignty of various countries. For example, Sweden, uh, Finland, uh, Switzerland, uh, all these countries now being pressured by the United States, utilizing economic means as well as military means uh, to join this alliance against the Russian Federation. I mean, it's absolutely a dangerous situation that is developing right now. If you look at uh, the Statistica uh, graph uh, that I did uh, uh, post in the article on uh, the food deficits, uh, countries like Somalia, for example, uh, get 100% of their imports uh, in regard to wheat uh, from Ukraine and Russia. Benin gets 100%. Uh, Laos, uh, which is in uh, Southeast Asia, which actually waged a war against the United States during the 1960s and 70s uh, during the Vietnam War, which was just not against Vietnam. It was also against uh, Cambodia. It was against Laos. Egypt, 82% of their wheat imports uh, come from uh, Russia and Ukraine. Sudan, 75%. Uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, 69%. Uh, Senegal, 66%. Uh, Tanzania, 64%. Uh, so this is according to uh, Statista. You know, it's not a left-wing uh, publication. You know, these are mainstream uh, tracking agencies. Uh, there are other uh, sources. The uh, Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations uh, rep- is reporting that uh, the war in Ukraine threatens global food security. Uh, they talk about how Russia and Ukraine share in global exports of selected crops. Uh, they have a graph uh, showing uh, that they're supplying huge amounts of wheat, uh, barley, maize, rapid seeds, sunflower seeds uh, to countries uh, throughout the world. We can even talk about energy resources as well. Uh, it's the same situation uh, with the blockade of Russia. This is going to put huge pressures even on countries within the European Union 
to service uh, their population needs in regard to heating and, and other resources that are essential. So this is a, a really a war on the world uh, that has been waged. And uh, the U.S. could have easily avoided this war. I mean, they could have sent Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, to Moscow to discuss some type of resolution to the conflict. Uh, the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, could have sent an envoy uh, to Moscow to discuss these issues. All they've done is call for more sanctions. The U.S. has supplied literally billions of dollars in military equipment uh, to Ukraine to continue the war. Uh, they have totally ignored the discussions that have taken place in Turkey and Belarus in efforts to end the conflict. Uh, all they're doing is sending weapons and promoting psychological warfare and, and uh, uh, propaganda against Russia, uh, claiming that thousands of Russian troops are being killed. In the next breath, they talk about genocide. In the next breath, uh, they talk about sinking uh, Russian warships. A lot of this information is designed not only to demoralize uh, the people in Ukraine and in Russia, but also to convince people in the West in the United States, in Canada, in Western Europe, to go along with what the Biden administration is doing right now, which is having a global impact on energy, on food, on transportation, and other essential uh, sectors of uh, society. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you just raised a point, Abayomi, that has not even been mentioned in Western media, and that's the fact that the war in Ukraine could have been avoided. But what's also missing um, from a lot of awareness of the American people is the sort of uh, historical role of NATO and NATO expansion and how central that is to what we're seeing in Ukraine right now. And, and there's a, I think it's also relevant to our broader conversation about a, a, a global food crisis that is being driven by these sanctions. And what Americans don't seem to, to understand is that, you know, no Russia official, not Vladimir Putin, not Sergei Lavrov. None of them are going to miss a meal because of these sanctions. They're not going to miss out on medicine or, or any basic, uh, you know, a, a resource needed in life. But it's going to be, you know, not only the Russian people, but as we're saying, people around the globe who are going to suffer the consequences of this because of its implication on a, a number of different factors. But how is the uh, sort of history of NATO expansion connected uh, to this and, and what we're seeing? in this effort that will have serious ripple effects for people across the world? It's quite important, and it's not covered uh, by the uh, corporate media or the government-controlled media in the United States or in Western Europe. Uh, the fact that uh, the relations between the former Soviet Union, uh, going all the, way, all the way back to 1917, all the way up uh, to the eve of war, the U.S. intervention in World War II uh, in 1941, and also, even during the war, uh, because um, truth be told, people like Stalin and even Churchill had attempted and encouraged the United States under Franklin Delano Roosevelt to open up a theater uh, in Europe, you know, against the Nazis, you know, as early as 1942. And they refused to do it up until 1943 and 1944. Now, of course, they were involved in the South Pacific. Uh, they were involved uh, somewhat in the uh, Operation Torch in North Africa 
which was also a major contested area between 1940 and 1943. But there's no real effort on the part of the corporate media inside the United States to explain to people that even with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 and uh, a period of uh, extreme, you know, economic distress, you know, in Russia and other countries in Eastern Europe, uh, that since the time that uh, Vladimir Putin has been in office, he's attempted to rebuild, you know, the economy of Russia. Now, this needs to be studied uh, systematically uh, because the fact that they've been able uh, to rebuild uh, to the point that they can supply uh, foodstuffs, uh, agricultural inputs, agricultural uh, production uh, equipment uh, to many countries uh, in the so-called developing world. And right now, because of the sanctions that are being posed by the Biden administration, all that is being disrupted. Uh, because if you, you place sanctions even on the central bank in Russia, on other financial institutions, it makes it even diff- more difficult uh, to even do transactions. Uh, for purchases of food uh, and uh, agricultural inputs, agricultural equipment, and other uh, aspects of trade, you know, between Russia, the Russian Federation, and Africa, and other parts of the uh, world. So this is what is not being uh, put forward uh, by the United States. And uh, some people are saying, well, you know, even if we have to pay higher gas prices, it's worth it uh, in order to support the people in Ukraine. Well, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, this war has been going on for years, that the U.S. backed a military coup and a uh, political coup against uh, the former government in Ukraine in 2014. There's been an essential war in the Donbass region against the uh, People's Republic of Lugansk and Donetsk uh, for the last eight years. And this is not being reported as well in the United States. And it was never stated uh, by the Russian government uh, that their objective was to take over the entire country of Ukraine and administer it as a province of the Russian Federation. I, I've never heard that coming from the Russian military or the Russian uh, political apparatus. Uh, they did talk about uh, eliminating a military threat to promote uh, neutrality in Ukraine and uh, also to go against the uh, right-wing uh, groups such as the Azov Brigade, the right sector, uh, which, in fact, has been very active and which has received U.S. support over the last eight years. So these are the factors that uh, are not being uh, discussed in the U.S. media in an attempt to build support for people in the United States against the Russian Federation and in support uh, of this war. And uh, this is a dangerous situation because uh, both countries, Russia and the United States, uh, have uh, substantial uh, stockpiles of weapons, even nuclear weapons. And uh, I, th- I don't think the Biden administration is really aware, uh, or unless they're that desperate, in order to ensure that the Democratic Party at least maintains control of the U.S. Congress uh, after the elections in November, and uh, also not lose uh, uh, the, the, the uh, split uh, nature of the U.S. Senate. Uh, right now, uh, and they won't be able to do anything. Then it will be a, a deadlock government uh, for the next two years. Uh, so they're using Ukraine uh, to show up uh, their political posture uh, because the program that uh, Biden ran on in uh, 2020 
uh, has not been able to pass uh, the U.S. Uh, Senate. Uh, for example, the uh, efforts uh, to ensure voting rights has not been able to be passed. The George Floyd Policing Act uh, has not passed. Uh, the social spending bill of $3.5 trillion uh, was not able uh, to be passed, which would have pro- provided uh, long-term child tax credits uh, and other uh, necessities of life that people need in the United States. So they're using militarism and imperialism and the supremacy and expansion of NATO and the destruction of uh, Russia and even China, for example, uh, to to show up the, the political apparatus and also to uh, try to ensure uh, the electoral victory of the Democratic Party in November. But it remains to be seen if people are going to accept this. And it also remains to be seen uh, if uh, the Biden administration can prevail uh, in their program in Eastern Europe. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Abayomi, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how the Biden administration wants to spend billions of dollars to militarize space. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Bruce Gagnon, coordinator of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Bruce, the administration of U.S. President uh, Joe Biden is proposing a twenty seven point six billion dollar budget for the militarization of outer space in 2023, which is a 25 percent increase from the budget of 2022. And uh, Jim Cooper, a Democrat um, from Tennessee, who is chairman of the Subcommittee on Strategic Forces, which is the body that oversees the space program, was quoted recently saying that the U.S., quote, must be prepared to defend our assets in orbit and maintain our ability to use space in support of global combatant commanders. In the wake of an irresponsible satellite test by Russia, which left thousands of pieces of debris, and China's grappling with a U.S. satellite and pulling it out of orbit, we cannot be too bold or aggressive in demonstrating our intent in space. And I mean, Bruce, I mean, to me, just the number, I mean, 27. Six billion dollars to to militarize space is already a pretty mind blowing in and of itself. But uh, I think there's another aspect to it as well in terms of how uh, militarizing space factors in to Washington's geostrategic interest um, in terms of its conflict with Russia and China. And and so I'm just sort of wondering your thoughts uh, not only about this budget, but what it could uh, uh, possibly mean in terms of uh, 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 the U.S. trying to, frankly, uh, uh, set the ground for another field of war. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is when uh, 
the Space Force was created during the Trump administration near the end of his time in office. First thing is the Democrats uh, supported it overwhelmingly. You know, they control the House of Representatives. They could have defeated it right then and there. But it just goes to show how both parties are integrated into the military-industrial complex. And the only thing the Democrats actually asked for at that moment was to call it the Space Corps, like the Marine Corps, rather than the Space Force. But other than that, uh, everybody said that there was going to be a lean budget at the Space Force, meaning, you know, uh, just a slight uptick in spending, but not much. But I knew that was a lie from the start. And now we're already seeing in year two now, after after it's been uh, around for a while, they're increasing, as you said, 25% dramatic. And it's going to grow, uh, grow even more. But what they're really up to is spending a lot of money on a new generation of military warfighting satellites. As it turns out, the think of a parking lot at, at a mall. The orbits around the Earth are getting crowded, especially with all these tens of thousands of launches for 5G, which is going to have tremendous military applications because it's going to give faster speeds for reconnaissance and targeting and everything else. But anyway, the orbits are getting crowded around the Earth. And so uh, they want to put in a whole new generation of military satellites and fill up that parking lot before Russia and China and other countries can do so. It's all part of the U.S. desire for control and domination of space. And clearly, the U.S. has been saying, at least since the late 80s, that they intend to uh, make sure that no other country, no competitor nation, can have access to space during wartime, uh, that the U.S. would be the dominant power because with space technology, you can see everything on the Earth, you can hear everything on the Earth, and ultimately you can target every place on the planet. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of the, the military industrial complex, I just want to point out that um, it appears that the one of the biggest benefactors of this uh, new budget is a defense contractor based in Florida called uh, L3 Harris. And uh, last October, uh, L3 Harris was given a hundred and twenty point seven million dollar contract to produce ground based communication jammers that uh, are used to block uh, satellite transmissions from, you know, uh, enemy satellites and things like this. And uh, I mentioned Jim Cooper a, a moment ago, uh, a congressman from Tennessee. And according to OpenSecrets.com, uh, L3 Harris is actually listed as one of Cooper's top contributors during the 2020 election cycle. So I guess uh, uh, no uh, big surprise that Cooper was so enthusiastic uh, about this budget. And see, this it's pretty concerning, frankly, I think to say the very release, Bruce, that we're even uh, seeing this kind of thing being proposed. I mean, particularly when, you know, th- there are so many uh, fundamental needs by people right here in the United States uh, that have not uh, been sort of critically addressed in terms of, you know, food and, and homelessness. I mean, we continue to see this um, a sort of overspending on war in general, but uh, with the militarization of space, I think being just um, uh, uh, the latest example. And I think you're correct to point out that, as usual, um, war is a a bipartisan issue and a a topic where Democrats and Republicans 
typically find themselves in lockstep. And so I'm wondering, what do you think sort of the political ramifications may be for a situation like this, Bruce, when we continue to see, you know, again, all this money going to uh, war and the military industrial conflicts while people's basic needs are neglected here. I mean, it seems like something that can only contribute to uh, what feels like the worsening of the social situation here inside the U.S. Absolutely. You know, it's recognition that they don't really care about the American people, just as today in Ukraine, the United States is using Ukraine as a proxy in a war against Russia to try to force regime change there. And they don't, U.S. doesn't care, doesn't give a damn about the people in Ukraine. So the American people are expendable. They're not needed anymore. Uh, and, and, and they want to thin out the population. They know that by disinvesting in human needs, things like uh, increases in Social Security or lack of medical care or uh, growing environmental problems, all of those shorten people's lives. And they know that. They know that very clearly. And so in a way, you could almost say that it's a different form of genocide, slow slow version of genocide of your own people because they're no longer really needed. I'll never forget during the Iraq war when George W. Bush was president, 2003, shock and awe, no weapons of mass destruction after all. Oh, how about that? Uh, But anyway, I was watching C-SPAN one night and they had a big auditorium full of military brass and they said CIA people were there. And they introduced the speaker, Thomas Barnett, who at that time was an instructor at the Navy War College. He had just written a new book called The Pentagon's New Map. And he laid out our role, America's role, under corporate globalization of the world economy. He said, we're not going to make things anymore in America. It's cheaper to go overseas, exploit labor overseas. Uh, we're going to, our number one export product is going to be security export, which means endless war to benefit the corporations as they go out and try to control oil, natural gas, water, minerals, et cetera, et cetera, all over the planet, mostly in the global south. So this is what we're really all about. And so this increase in spending on the Space Force really indicates that this strategy is fully being implemented today. You know, it reminds me during World War II, the Italian Nazi leader uh, Mussolini, he described fascism as the wedding of corporations and government. And clearly, when I think about it, when I think about the United States today, what do we have? We have the wedding of corporation, corporate interests, and government. And as you just said, uh, Jim Cooper, Democrat from Tennessee, chairman of the Subcommittee on Strategic Forces that oversees the U.S. space program, he's big time a agent of the military-industrial complex. So they've essentially bought off both parties, and they get what they want. And it's all about increasing the U.S. capability for control and domination of the planet. That's what it, it's all oriented towards. Absolutely. And I was actually curious if you could tell us some about the the history of the U.S. and its um, interest 
in trying to uh, weaponize space. I mean, I know it's not something that um, originated uh, under uh, uh, Donald Trump. At least I know it wasn't sort of, you know, his idea in that way. I feel like this is, uh, you know, um, an arena where the U.S. has been wanting to make inroads uh, for quite some time as a part of what today is called this project of a full spectrum dominance. And so, I mean, how far back does this effort from the U.S. go and trying to uh, conquer space in this way? Well, it goes back to just after World War II, when under Operation Paperclip, the United States smuggled, literally military, U.S. military smuggled 1,500 top Nazi operatives into the U.S., seated the entire military-industrial complex. The people, the, the uh, German Nazi scientists that were doing mind control experiments on people, uh, mostly Jews and other prisoners of war. They were brought to create the MK Ultra mind control experiment program uh, here in the U.S. The German uh, uh, military science people who were doing experiments again with uh, prisoners of war and Jews, putting them in freezing temperatures to see how the body would react if a pilot got shot down over a cold water region. They were uh, brought to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base to create the Air Force uh, Space Space, uh, Medical Program. And then a hundred of the Nazi operatives who created the V-1 and V-2 rockets for Hitler, his war effort, uh, Werner von Braun, the leading scientist in that group, they were brought to Huntsville, Alabama, uh, that is now in contention to be named the headquarters of the, of the uh, new Space Force, by the way. They call it the Pentagon of the South there. They have more engineers in Huntsville, Alabama than any other city in America. Well, anyway... There, they, they brought the 100 copies of the V-2 rocket. They brought 100 of the Nazi engineers and scientists to create the U.S. space program. Uh, in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan came forward with his Star Wars proposal that really kicked in huge funding for research and development into the program. Then the U.S. began uh, withdrawing from treaties like the ABM Treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty that outlawed so-called missile defense systems, the shield that would be used after a U.S. first strike attack. And so uh, then, uh, most importantly, I think, was a study done by Congress, commissioned by the U.S. Congress in 1989, published as a book called Military Space Forces the Next 50 Years. Uh, And in this study that was signed by the likes of Senator John Glenn from Ohio, an early astronaut, uh, other leading uh, politicians from both parties. And in, in, their, in this study, they lay out this idea that uh, the U.S. must control and dominate space. The U.S. must control the Earth-Moon gravity well, the study says, because uh, they, they say, think of a wishing well. Imagine someone is down inside the bottom of a well. You're at the top. They can't get out. Well, they say if the U.S. controls the moon and and has armed space stations on either side of the moon, it will be able to control who gets on and off the planet Earth to go out and mine the sky in the future years. 
And so today now we see efforts underway to create these technologies that would allow the U.S. to control who gets on and off the planet Earth. In that study, for example, they say if the U.S. was positioned at these two points on either side of the moon, they would be able to hijack rival shipments upon return. Imagine that in a congressional study. They're talking about piracy here. So these are the kind of things that have been going on inside of that Pentagon uh, and, and, and developing these strategies for U.S. control of Earth and space itself using these high-tech uh, programs that are now being massively funded by the Pentagon. Yeah, I really appreciate that context, Bruce. And what you're raising here is a very inconvenient history for the United States government, which upholds itself. I mean, even in this very moment, uh, excuse me, um, in the context of the war in Ukraine as a defender of democracy and human rights. And you made the comment uh, a couple minutes ago about, you know, fascism being a sort of merging of uh, corporate interests with the state. And here we have a documented history of the U.S. uh, smuggling and harboring actual uh, uh, fascists, you know, the, the very elements that, you know, uh, uh, you know, the U.S. Uh, uh, said that, you know, they were in place to try to conquer and defeat, but found them useful for uh, uh, Washington's sort of desires for full spectrum dominance. And I mean, I think there's even more relevance when we look at how, you know, uh, also enormous investment uh, from the U.S. government into military aid into Ukraine. And some of that will inevitably fall into the hands of some of these uh, neo-Nazis and far-right and uh, uh, ultra-nationalist paramilitary groups like the Azov Battalion and others. And so, I mean, what I think is clear, Bruce, is that regardless of how the U.S. portrays itself to its own people and to the world, um, it is not a uh, government that is truly interested in peace or truly interested in ending war because indeed it, it needs war to be able to maintain a, a U.S world hegemony. And when we see uh, this kind of uh, open uh, acknowledgement in a number of ways towards trying to best uh, China and Russia in different ways, it just seems clear that so much of what we're seeing is uh, a desperate attempt from Washington to try to keep this uh, unipolar world intact. That's right. You know, uh, every year for the last 25 years, Russia and China have gone to the U.N., introducing a resolution calling for a new treaty, an updated treaty, to ban all weapons in space. They call it PAROS, P-A-R-O-S, Prevention of an Arms Race in Outer Space. And the U.S. and Israel have been blocking that treaty development for all these years. The official position of the U.S. is, hey, there are no weapons in space. There's no problem. We don't need a new treaty. But it's clear who's calling that shot. It's the industry. It's the industry who has long said that Star Wars, a generic name for war in space, would be the largest industrial project in the history of the planet Earth. So imagine the profits to be made. In uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado is the headquarters of the Air Force Space Command. And above their doorway, they have their logo that reads, Master of Space. I ask you to think about the similarity between Master of Space and Nazi Germany's call, Deutschland über alles, Germany over all. 
how much difference is there between those two slogans? And I can't help but wonder, was there an ideological contamination that came along with these 1,500 Nazi operatives smuggled into the U.S. after World War II? Even the president of the United States at the time, Harry Truman, didn't even know about this operation bringing all these Nazis into this country. And I would submit that there has been an ideological contamination. There's no doubt about it. I urge people to go to our website, which is spaceforpeace.org, space, the number four, peace.org, and check out our video section where each month we make another video on a different aspect of this whole space program. Uh, and uh, people can help us by sharing those videos and getting more people to really know what's happening. Yeah, and this is why I'm glad that we have groups like the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, Bruce, to really shed light on just these kinds of issues. And it seems to me that what it's really going to take is uh, an organized movement, a real struggle to try to uh, uh, reel in and to frankly dismantle uh, what the U.S. is attempting to do in space here and to get Washington in line with uh, the rest of the real uh, international community that doesn't want uh, weapons in space, as you were noting earlier. And uh, like with a lot of issues, I feel like we have a particular duty uh, in the U.S. uh, to organize against this as well. That's for sure. But, you know, people uh, can't really organize around an issue if they don't know anything about it. That's right. And in the old days, in the early 80s, we used to be able to get interviewed. I, I remember one time driving through the streets of Orlando, Florida, where I lived at the time, around 80, uh, 84, 85, and listening to myself being interviewed on the news break on CBS News and the car radio. Well, corporate media doesn't ever interview us anymore. Never. I mean, you know, it's, those days are way gone. So uh, it's hard to reach the people anymore. So thank goodness for programs like yours. I really appreciate that, Bruce. Well, we're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, April 14th, 2022. I'm here holding it down while my co-host Jackie Lukeman is out handling the people's business. And as always, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth, we want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to hit us up at 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also hear our shows on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any 
underscore means. You can also check out our shows and download it at sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. And of course, you can see us streaming live at this time every day at rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. And at the top of the hour here, the Grand Rapids Police Department will not be releasing the name of the officer that shot and killed 26-year-old Patrick Leoya. Uh, Leoya was killed on Monday, April 4th during a traffic stop, according to um, police reports. And their justification uh, uh, for not releasing the officer's name is that he has not been charged for the crime. Although we know that uh, keeping an officer's name secret is a regular practice after one of these racist police killings. And um, there was a um, press conference that was held uh, uh, recently by Grand Rapids Police Chief Eric Witham, and uh, during which uh, we saw a number of sources of footage from the fatal shooting, which included a body-worn camera, an in-car camera, a cell phone, and a home surveillance system. According to police, the officer's body camera actually deactivated during the struggle and before the gunshot. So that's mighty uh, convenient. And also, according to reports, uh, the officer fired his weapon while he was kneeling on top of Leoya, who was face down on the ground when he was shot and killed. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Nino Brown, an elementary school teacher and organizer with Reds in Ed and the Boston Jericho Movement. Nino, thanks so much for joining us. Peace. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, and we're glad to have you today, Nino, because, you know, by any means necessary, we're all about uh, people being organized and joining organizations and getting into movements. And in a political moment that we're in right now, I actually think that that's especially important. I mean, uh, particularly following from the ongoing war in Ukraine, which has uh, uh, shaken up global politics, which I think is just one more spoke in the wheel, if you will, of a number of uh, a cascading and intertwining um, issues that are deepening because of the contradictions of the capitalist system. You know, that includes uh, climate change, includes the coronavirus, certainly uh, war and imperialism and, and things like this. And we talk a lot on the show about uh, sort of the ideological substance of uh, organizing sort of a mass uh, radical militant movement, if you will, to sort of really concretely and critically address um, these uh, crises and contradictions of the capitalist system. But I wanted to talk some today about just what it looks like to build a mass movement to overturn capitalism. And there's a new book that was recently released entitled Revolutionary Education, Theory and Practice for Socialist Organizers, which is actually the first book 
uh, from the Liberation School Editorial Collective. And in that book, Nino, you actually penned a chapter entitled Building Organization and Creating Cadre. Now, this, I think, is something that's actually crucially important for um, organizers to to really understand, because if what we're seeking to do is overturn this capitalist system that has been entrenched for centuries, then we're going to need the uh, direct enthusiastic involvement of poor, working and oppressed people in the United States. And so to begin, you know, I'm going to ask, you know, a broad question from your perspective. What are some of the major things that people should be keeping in mind and practicing? And how should we be presenting and orienting ourselves towards organizing a a, a movement and not just any movement, but a, a socialist movement that is, you know, not just interested in simply having a correct position. And isn't only interested in intellectual pursuits, not just, you know, as important as study is, you know, not just have it be one big book club. You know what I mean? What does it look like to sort of build uh, a real uh, socialist movement in a moment uh, uh, such as this? And, and, you know, how do you see it sort of unfolding in that way? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think you raised a lot. And uh, I think just. Uh, to take it from the top, I think one is, you know, you mentioned that word cadre, which is a word that, you know, most people don't use on the day to day. But uh, I think just to define it, um, cadres are, as Che Guevara would say, are the backbones of the revolution. You know, the pillars of any type of movement that, you know, uh, is composed of activists, but also organizers and also folks who think deeply about the activism and organizing that they're doing and, you know, need to apply some type of theory, right? And theory is another term that is a, you know, boogeyman term sometimes, I think, in in activism and the movement. But theory really is just the crystallized lessons of the struggle of working people. You know, uh, it's the, the crystallized lessons from, you know, the slave revolts, the Haitian Revolution, the French Revolution, the uh, the Russian Revolution, Cuban, and so on, right? <clears throat> it's really our history just kind of turned into a, a, a conceptual and ideological tool for us to wage further struggle. So cadres, you know, are really just our pillars of movements, and we try to, I mean, successful movements uh, have cadres that are, are armed with theory. Right, under the understanding, a clarity, a vision uh, of the line of march, so that we can build a a movement that is built up of the masses of people, and not just, uh, you know, uh, as we see today, kind of like influencer type activism or just book clubs and things like that. Um, and the book that uh, the Liberation School Collective uh, produced and uh, edited, uh, you know, Revolutionary Education Theory and Practice for Socialist Organizers. Um, I think it's a book that should be read by everyone who's serious about, you know, engaging in uh, mass movement building. And I say that because essentially we understand that, you know, revolutionary, there can be no revolutionary movement without revolutionary theory. If we don't know uh, what our goals are, if we don't know what the proximates of struggle are, the histories of struggle, uh, all of which Marxism, you know, provides some tools to you know, figure out and, and summate. If we don't have those things, then we're kind of 
putting down one of the most potent weapons that working class and oppressed peoples have. Um, you know, it's a it's a weapon that our class has used to struggle not just for reforms, but to build revolutionary societies where working class people are in control as opposed to billionaires uh, and, and profit incentives. And as a revolutionary socialist, you know, we recognize that there's a, uh, a break in ideological continuity. So, for example, what, I, what do I mean by that? Well, one is if you walk into a bookstore today and you try to find a book on how to get involved in activism or organizing, it's likely to be, you know, an academic text uh, coming from like Oxford or Harvard or uh, or Duke. And this is not to knock, you know, I mean, I've read some amazing books <clears throat> that have been published by Oxford and, and Duke or what have you, but it's different than the 1960s and 70s when there was a revolutionary upsurge where you could walk into a bookstore and you would find Che Guevara, you would find Mao Zedong, maybe some Fidel Castro, some Franz Fanon, uh, revolutionaries who were making revolution in real time or around that, that, that time period. Uh, and that ideological continuity has been broken, has been severed. We all saw what happened in the 1980s with the rise of neoliberalism and the counter-revolution that led to mass incarceration and, and literally locked away so many would-be revolutionaries, uh, as well as revolutionaries themselves. You know, Mumia Bujamal, Lena Peltier, uh, Sundiata Kohli, and, and the list goes on. Um, so this book really is an effort to uh, restore some of that continuity with the past struggles uh, to build cadres and to arm them with a, a, a working theory, uh, a theory that is built up of working-class struggles um, to guide the struggles, to build onto them and make them sharper. Um, I've been talking for a minute. I think just the last thing I'll say is, you know, uh, <clears throat> you know, as opposed to nonprofit or Democratic Party, you know, mainstream activists, uh, type of molds, the framework that, you know, we take in the Party for Socialism and Liberation and, you know, just in this book is that we have to see people as subjects and not objects, right? History is made by the masses of people. They're not made by individual leaders. We are not trying to give away handouts. For example, when we do mutual aid, we're trying to engage with our class, find leaders among our class, and train them to be professional revolutionaries for our class, uh, those pillars, those cadres, right? Because there are so many people who are better than us <clears throat> as organizers, and it's our job to find the people who are better than us uh, and recruit them and build them into an organization of leaders. Um, so I've been, you know, going for a bit, but definitely uh, those are some things, I think, just to start on, you know, organization cadre and movement building. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You raise a lot of uh, good points, I, I think, Nino. And, and what stood out to me, and this is something that I think, you know, those of us uh, on what perhaps we could call the revolutionary left in the United States, I think should, you know, should be clear on. And that's the fact that um, in this period following the 60s, as you were noting, um, as I think a result of the full on assault from uh, the capitalist state on uh, the militant uh, uh, movements, you know, the Black Panthers, the American Indian movement, the, the Young Lords and other uh, such organizations. And this um, kind of uh, stigmatizing and, and suppression of revolutionary theory, there was um, a, a gap 
uh, if you will. There was a void is what I mean to say that became filled by ideologies and theories that didn't come from the street, that didn't come from the working class, that didn't have a grassroots origin, but instead evolved out of the halls of academia. And I think that that is what creates these kinds of liberal and um, ultimately individualistic ways of thinking about um, politics and organizing and uh, uh, things like this. And I think that there's a direct connection between that and what you described as this, you know, influencer uh, uh, style of presentation, which is very popular because, you know, if you're an influencer, you're just one person who isn't trying to build an organization or a movement. You're trying to build a platform that is uh, completely centered around you. Right. And so at that point, you make the rules. You don't have to be disciplined. You don't have to be accountable to, to anybody. You're basically sort of uh, uh, running the show. And I think that, you know, social media culture and all these sorts of things sort of a, a factor into that. And so how do you see this um, kind of influencer style uh, of organizing as being inappropriate, if you will, or maybe even being harmful to the kind of uh, mass organizing that, that that we're speaking of if we're talking about a real revolutionary transformation inside the United States. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. Um, and I agree with it. I think that the commentary would oftentimes joke. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, you're, you're, uh, uh, we're getting some, some sound issues on your end, but yeah, uh, uh, to be sure, um, I don't think it's an, an accident because when we talk about this whole, uh, uh, influencer issue, it's sort of like we see people making themselves a brand. And so even being, you know, radical or, or militant or even supposedly a, a revolutionary is a brand in and of itself. And as the person making themselves a, a brand, sort of the product uh, to be bought and sold. And, and I think we got you back here, but definitely curious your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I definitely want to build on what you were saying. Um, I think, you know, one is to zoom out. I mean, this is, uh, you know, U.S. military strategy. Uh, for years, the United States has dominated the eye, the the, the airs, the 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 land, uh, sea, um, technology, and you know what they haven't been able to completely gain dominance over is really just the hearts and minds of the masses of people, and they've recognized this, you know, even through their own national security strategies, that they need to essentially have influencers. Uh, to win the cultural war, to win the battle of ideas. Uh, you know, we see these threats of uh, cyber war and so-called psyops, psychological operations, which are very, you know, legitimate. I mean, they, they exist. Uh, we've seen them in color revolutions. Uh, we see them even just a couple years ago with the, uh, the disturbances in Cuba, right, where all of a sudden these social media accounts pop up of so-called influencers that, have you know horrible politics, pro-imperialist, pro-capitalist uh, uh, politics, but uh, they're platformed because there is an actual struggle. There's a class struggle going on in the realm of ideas, and it's not just in the realm of ideas abstractly, but it's for people's hearts and minds, uh, and ultimately their political orientation. And I think, as you said, the the mode of 
engaging in activism is, you know, pardon me, has shifted to essentially, uh, or, you know, this is not entirely, but shifted towards this, this influencer culture where people see themselves as brands, see themselves as uh, trying to build movements that are not movements, but really just photo ops, uh, uh, ways to gain quick celebrity um, and not actually struggle around the issues that working class people are going through to the end. So, you know, maybe by way of example, um, you know, we all have seen, you know, the Ferguson rebellion and the George Floyd rebellions of 2020. And when I was in the streets in 2014, you know, I, I saw folks again, try to run for political office, uh, out of the rebellions, try to essentially launch, you know, nonprofits and, you know, apps as the ways to, uh, try to, you know, really capitalize off of the, the, the movement. And in 2020, you know, we saw the same thing, almost like clockwork. So, you know, I mentioned that point about continuity and theory is because uh, not everyone remembers those same lessons. The folks who, some of the folks who I saw in the streets in 2014, uh, you know, had worse positions, you know, than they, in 2020, when I saw them in the streets again. And I think that's largely in part due to just the, you know, how capitalism kind of frames, uh, as Kwame Ture would say, frames things as, you know, just add water and you can have an instant solution, right? And we see this with, you know, he mentions instant coffee, instant noodles, and some folks think that we can have instant revolution, right? Instant progress, instant change. And whether there's some so-called technical fix uh, that they can propose through an app or if there's just some technical political fix uh, you know, apply these set of policies to stop police violence, uh, as opposed to actually going to the root cause, right? And when you're working with working class people on a day to day basis, right, you see the, the, just the invalidity of some of these reform, reformist orientations. They don't actually help the people who they're trying to help. Um, and, you know, I, I firmly believe that, you know, working class people have to become subjects, not just objects, you know, people that are written about and spoken about by, you know, non-working class people and audiences, but there actually needs to be an activation of uh, people's true, real radical desires, right, uh, or desires that, you know, would be considered radical in this country, such as wanting healthcare and housing and, edu and decent education, so-called radical ideas. Uh, and influencer culture doesn't doesn't lead to that. And I think the book really speaks against that. It speaks to the need for humility. It speaks to the need for patience. You know, it speaks to the need for collectivity over individualism, uh, values that are really stamped out of us uh, from birth. And we're force fed this individualist American dream lie that we can have instant progress, instant change. If we just have, you know, some correct influencer, tell us what the right ideas are and we just go implement them as opposed to doing the hard work of getting off of social media, building with people, uh, not, you know, not negating social media entirely, but, uh, using it as a tool as opposed to us being used by it. Um, and whoever controls it, uh, for whatever, you know, capitalist and imperialist ends more often than not. Definitely. And shout out to Manny Nile in the by any means necessary chat who says <clears throat> capitalism has permeated everything for about 10 years or so. We have been indoctrinated with the, quote, personal brand nonsense 
It causes people to focus on their personal gain and how their actions can benefit them and their resume. Little to no care is paid to how it affects others. I think that's definitely true. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 0252-11320. That's 2-0252-11320. I continue to be joined by Nino Brown. And, you know, continuing this conversation about uh, uh, how socialist organizers should be orienting ourselves towards, you know, the building of a movement and a struggle to overturn this uh, capitalist system. Um, One of the sort of uh, segments, if you will, uh, of your piece in this uh, uh, new book, A Revolutionary Education Theory and Practice for Socialist Organizers, you have a piece that's called uh, March With, Not Ahead. Of the masses. And I think that speaks to something that we hear a lot of organizers and movement people talk about in terms of, you know, quote unquote, meeting people where they are. And in the piece, you say that oftentimes, even, you know, as much as people say that, um, oftentimes they're coming with uh, ideas and strategies and tactics that actually keep people where they are. So, you know, from your perspective, what does it mean to be with as opposed to ahead of the people? And why is it so important that we recognize the difference uh, during our organizing efforts? Yeah, I think, um, you know, in in, uh, the section, I believe, quotes the chairman Mao Zedong, who led the Chinese revolution. And, you know, he says uh, that there are two different outlooks for revolutionaries. Those are the rightists and those are the uh, leftists. Uh, way of thinking. The folks who are rightist, you know, they make no distinction between themselves and the enemy, and they even take the enemy for their own people, right? They regard their, you know, friends as the very, very, very persons who the broad masses would regard as enemies, whereas those with a left or leftist way of thinking, they magnify the contradictions between ourselves and the enemy to such an extent that they take some of these contradictions among the people as contradictions with the enemy, right? And then you you regard, you know, counter-revolutionary persons who are actually not counter-revolutionary. So broadly, what I would say is uh, that when we're marching, when, when we talk about marching with and not ahead the masses, we have to be shoulder to shoulder with the people of our class, struggling around the immediate issues that they are facing, housing, education, healthcare, police violence, what have you. Right. And consciousness tends to lag behind movement. Right. An idea uh, you can, for example, you can tell, you know, a coworker, listen, the police are fundamentally a part of a racist white supremacist system meant to protect private property and, and, and capitalism. Uh, and racism, and they can say, well, you know, I have a, co- I have a brother or a sister who's a police officer, uh, not all cops. And they might not really understand fully that idea until they're on a picket line and the police attack the picket line, right? Where that, that consciousness 
lags behind the actual movement. Once there's some movement, people, you know, sum up the ideas of that movement and come to conclusions. And in essence, they have to go through their own experiences. We as organizers cannot say, uh, you know, foolish people, you are, you know, napes and, and fools, and we have the correct answer. Uh, as Huey P. Newton, uh, founder of the Black Panther Party, would say, you know, we can't just, we can't just, we, we know the entire process of a, from A to Z in building a revolutionary movement, right? We want Z, a revolution, a change of the system where, you know, billionaires are not in control, but working class, poor working class people are in control. And we cannot go to someone and just start with point Z, the conclusion. We have to work with people step by step, struggle by struggle, summarize the struggle, uh, and crystallize the lessons from the struggle, which is a torturous and very worthwhile process. Right. But it's a lot easier and a lot less effective, I would argue, to take the influence around where you're not struggling with people. You're just giving the allure that you are struggling or engaged in some, you know, big conversation with the big wigs and politicians of the time of the day, uh, which negates the subjectivity of the masses. Right. What do I mean by that? Uh, it's going to take the transformation of people who maybe you have written off and said, oh, this person would never be a revolutionary. This person, you know, uh, they go to church all the time. They're super religious. Maybe they're not interested. Or this person, you know, they're super focused on school and work. Oh, maybe they're not interested. Uh, and revolutionaries are not going to fall from the sky. They have to be made based off of the people who we have here. We're not going to build socialism. We're not going to build any alternative to capitalism with, you know, the creme de la creme uh, of, of, of socialist building, we're going to build them with the people who have been written off, the 140 million people who are poor or near poor uh, in this country, uh, who are never, you know, trusted to make any type of policy decisions. They're not even asked. And that's what we have to do really is uh, march with people, struggle with them, shoulder to shoulder. Some of summarize the lessons and not, you know, be on the sidelines saying we have the correct truth, we have the correct ideology, but also we can't underestimate the, the the revolutionary resolve of masses of people we've seen just in 2020. 35 million people were protesting in the streets to demand justice for George Floyd and uh, an end to, an end to the policing system as we know it. Uh, there were demonstrations in over at least 60 cities all over the world, right? People, places as far as Japan, as Korea, were demanding, you know, Black Lives Matter uh, and supporting the struggle of, you know, uh, the black black Americans in the, in the United States, right? So uh, I'll say all that to say, um, you know, when we try to move people uh, politically, ideologically, they're not going to, as a teacher, I'll say, you know, students do not learn from teachers they don't like. If they don't like you, if you're not organizing with them, if you're not struggling with them, showing them that care and patience, humility, they're not going to listen to what you say, right? I could be the best teacher in the world, but if I don't know how to actually relate to my students, hear them out, even if they're wrong, even if, even if they're bad, so-called bad, right? Uh, I still have a duty to hear them out if I want them to learn, if I want them to actually be educated. Um, and it's a dialectical process, right? As Fred Hampton says, it takes two to tango. It's not just we're teaching and they are learning. Uh, we are teaching because we have learned and we're learning because we're teaching. And, you know, the best way to show if you know something is to try to teach it, right? Um, so, yeah, we, we don't want to meet people where they're at and then leave them where they're at. 
right? And and lower lower our expectations uh, and, you know, not presume that everyone can be competent, that every working class person can understand revolutionary politics. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in a black community, West Church, you know, religiously every Sunday, and I would see people who knew the Bible like like no other. You know, they would study the Bible on the church, uh, on the bus, you know, study the Bible after basketball practice. And it's not that people don't have an aptitude for study, right? Uh, they're just studying just different things, right? What we have to do is how do we get them to study revolutionary things? How do we get them to apply that same uh, sacrifice and dedication that they do towards, you know, things that I would say are, you know, are somewhat distractions, right? Conspiracy theories, uh, you know, super, super abstract, non-liberation theologists, religion, right? Uh, the people can learn. Uh, we have to presume competence, struggle alongside folks, not go too far ahead of them, not underestimate them, uh, but really be shoulder to shoulder as friends uh, and not, you know, pedants. Yeah, definitely. And um, also in the By Any Means Necessary chat, uh, D.L. Sandero says, Hey, Nino, I saw the book launch and I'm expecting to receive it any day now. So we got someone uh, who's excited uh, to get this new piece. And yet what you're saying, Nino, makes me think of, of a couple of things in terms of being with the people, because I see this tendency sometimes, and I think it's a clash issue like so many things are. But I honestly, I see people sort of speaking one way or paying lip service to, you know, uh, being with the people and struggling alongside them and things like that. But the way they behave and even the things they say sometimes implies that they think that they're smarter than the masses of people, that they do know better. I mean, this attitude that you were speaking towards uh, uh, a moment ago, which I think in and of itself uh, is a hindrance. And I was also thinking about uh, what you mentioned a little earlier in our in our conversation about the rebellion against racism following the racist police killing of George Floyd. We had millions of people on the streets. And, and one thing that I noticed is that a lot of these folks, you know, who were sort of um, uh, christened and blessed uh, by the, the mainstream media and they got these big online followings and these big uh, podcasts and, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're set up with these foundations and platforms that get big Democrat money and things like that. Their relevance plummeted, really. And I think it just goes to show what really counts in a moment of struggle. But, you know, you mentioned, you know, students and sort of that dynamic between teacher and student and education and things like this. And we've been discussing the issue of consciousness in education. And of course, you're there in Boston, Massachusetts and in the state of Massachusetts. I know that there's this um, issue about uh, a state takeover of uh, Boston public schools. And I was looking at um, an article from schoolyardnews.com um, back from March that says that Massachusetts since 2010 has taken control of three districts. Uh, in 2011, it took over Lawrence. In 2015, it took over Holyoke. In 2016, it took over uh, Southbridge. And according to this piece, in all three of these districts, uh, the majority of the students by far are a uh, Latin uh, more than 80 percent of the children in all of these districts ran by the state are from a low income families. And in Boston specifically, it's 71 percent. So I was hoping you could help us understand just what is happening um, in Boston around the issue of the public schools and uh, a state takeover and what's really at play here. 
Yeah, I have a lot to say about this. Um, you know, I taught in Boston Public Schools for about five, six years now. Taught first grade, fifth grade, second grade. Um, did some some substitute teaching in I believe fourth grade. Uh, and yeah, it, it's really a travesty. I mean, one commissioner of elementary and secondary education, uh, Jeff Riley, uh, he. He he has a track record, to say the least. Um, our superintendent, Brenda Caselius, uh, is on her way out. We have a very, you know, we have a more progressive mayor than we previously had, and Michelle Wu, um, who was, you know, widely elected. Uh, and, you know, we have, we're in a different, different moment. We have a city council that is more diverse and representative of the working class of Boston. Uh, also, we have the push to make the school committee uh, elected, or at least hybrid, where there's some elected folks and some appointed folks. So really kind of a watershed moment for Boston historically, but uh, we have this you know reactionary push from the state to override the authority of the mayor and the school committee, uh, which is uh, very ironic because Boston's one of the few cities that empowers the mayor to be essentially the czar of education and doesn't have an elected school committee. Um, so, you know, you would think that these two things would be not at loggerheads, but they are. Uh, but to kind of break down what state intervention would mean, it means that uh, the state, you know, well, one, there would be a diminishing of local control of public schools to the extent that it, you know, exists. Uh, and, you know, this would essentially mean that 30, I think it's about 34 Boston public schools uh, that rank in the lowest 10% of public schools, you know, generally would be taken over by the state. That means the teachers would be fired. The entire staffs would be, you know, fired as well. Uh, and they would kind of start anew. Um, currently, as you said, Massachusetts has school districts of Lawrence, Holyoke, Southbridge, uh, in receivership, all of which are in low-income communities, uh, working-class communities, uh, and under state control. None of these districts None of these districts have moved out of the lowest 10% of the ranking system. So the state took over and has had abysmal results, but is keep on, they keep going, steamrolling. And we oftentimes say, oh, well, you know, socialism doesn't work. Well, capitalism clearly does not work. And, you know, even capitalist state intervention does not work, right? For example, in Lawrence, uh, a district which, you know, 88% of the students are classified as low income, right? 71% are English language learners. Lawrence is a very D- Dominican uh, Latino community, uh, you know, 21, just 21% of these students scored meeting expectations on their MCAS, which is their state exams, right? And this is under state intervention. And, you know, as a teacher, it's really just frustrating because we all know what happened in the last two and a half years. We all lived through, um, we, we all we all saw the COVID pandemic destroy public education or, or whatever existed of it, you know, at that time. Um, and, you know, it's further a slap in the face because in 2020, um, in March, you know, the superintendent, Brenda Caselius, signed a memorandum of understanding with DESE, the Department of uh, Elementary and Secondary Education, uh, that pledged to make reforms to Boston Public Schools, right? These 34 schools that are underperforming. Uh, they were going to expand coursework, um, which is just so, so important. We cannot just drill math, English, science. To, to, to children, they need they need art, they need uh, theater, they need music, they need 
sports. They need so many things to develop their human being and not just math, English, science. Um, but, uh, you know, other things that we were promised as reforms were reducing student absenteeism, uh, reducing the number of students uh, with disabilities in separate segregated classrooms, fixing the bathrooms and the water, uh, which was really in a state of disrepair. Some of these school buildings were built like right after the Civil War uh, and still are functioning to this day. Um, so, yeah, I say all that to say that, you know, these were promises that were made. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. You know, some improvements were made uh, during the lockdown such as being able to make repairs to school bathrooms, uh, upgrading drinking fountains, uh, things that should have just been done in general. Makes me think of, you know, what did students deal with up until they got fixed, right? Uh, I remember when I was teaching in first grade, the entire hallway would smell like tea because we were supposed to have three janitors and we had one and a half, right? Uh, because of budget cuts. And this is in 2016, 2017. Um <clears throat> And lastly, just the MCAS, the statewide test, it was canceled in 2020 because of the turn to remote education and just, you know, major shifts in instruction. Uh, I can tell you first graders do not learn well online. I mean, maybe it could be done for a small group, but uh, there's no reason that we should be testing students at all coming out of as we emerge from this pandemic. Um, It's just very, very hurtful, very wrong-headed uh it's actually enraging a lot of teachers students community members and you know they uh what's the phrase they kind of barked up a hornet's hornet's nest hornet's nest um and yeah commissioner riley does not know the type of problems that he is now incurring um because the mayor is against it the president of the boston teachers union is against it uh teachers are against it community members are against it we have clear evidence that it has not worked uh, and, you know, this is one of those moments where it could be a real citywide struggle for the education that we deserve. Uh, but I've been going off for a minute, so I mean, definitely could say more about it. I'll just stop there for now. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch TDC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Nino Brown is here as we keep the movement moving on. And, uh, Nino, I I was wondering over the break, you know, if you could say more about how the pandemic and remote learning is really impacting students and how it's impacting young people. Because one thing that I've been thinking a lot about personally is that if I was in their shoes, right, if I was in their age in school and was put in a position that because of a global pandemic, that was horribly bungled by the government of the wealthiest nation in the history of nations. And I had to sit at home and actually be expected to be engaged in um, this remote learning. It would be incredibly difficult 
if not impossible for me to really gain much from it. I mean, you know, for me, it was hard enough to pay attention when I was in the classroom. You know what I mean? And so what has that looked like, you know, from what you've seen and how do you think it ripples through um, the quality of learning for these young people? Yeah, I mean, one is um, uh, mental health, uh, self-care. These terms have uh, really become uh, just just all around us in education, um, especially during the pandemic, during this entire ordeal. And although they've been, you know, turned into buzzwords, uh, they actually still have a lot of, you know, validity and things that uh, we should focus on, you know. so. There's teacher mental health, student mental health, um, and it's been severely eroded just because the same expectations are there, as if the pandemic didn't exist. Uh, when I was teaching first grade just a couple of years ago, um, you know, we still had the same uh, expectations to, you know, meet the same end-of-year goals with little to no, you know, added support. Uh, it's not as if they hired teachers and math so that everyone could have smaller class sizes. Uh, you know, we had teachers who were teaching 30 students online, right? Uh, which means, I mean, I, I know when I was teaching, it was just very difficult to do. Uh, and, you know, I saw students just get depressed because they know that they're not learning. They know that, you know, they, that, that they're not learning. And it would have been a lot better to really engage in some of the things we we don't normally get to engage in, uh, which is just, you know, math, science, English. Um, instead of focusing on teaching to the test, instead of focusing on, you know, testing students to find out how much they don't know in the middle of a pandemic, right? We could have done project-based learning, uh, chances to, you know, enjoy the natural world while everyone is inside, uh, go on field trips, you know, um, to really make sure that students have up-to-date technology at home uh, and really robust programming, uh, right? We have some of the greatest minds in, in, you know, in this country that could make video games that are educational for students, right? The, the possibilities were endless. And I remember in the beginning of the pandemic, some were positing that, well, this is the chance for, uh, you know, the black and working class students to catch up with the students in the sub, white students in the suburbs because, uh, you know, the white students in the suburbs would uh, allegedly fall off. And because they fall off, we could just work harder during the pandemic to catch up. Obviously, history has not been kind to that position in the slightest, right? The gaps have gotten worse. Uh, young people uh, exhibit more mental health issues. Uh, in, in Boston, we actually waging a campaign for sex education because, uh, uh, you know, we were working with a mother whose son was sexually harassed in school. And, you know, uh, in in the school, students were just walking around in the hallway, just unsupervised. And it ended up, you know, in the situation where, a, you know, a, student, a boy, you know, a boy was sexually harassed by another boy. And the administration said, well, you know, well, boys will be boys. That's literally what they said. Uh, and when we asked them, you know, are there other counselors? To deal, have the students talk about this, they said there are no counselors. So we have a modern school in in Boston, Massachusetts. Students are let back into school in person. Uh, all types of chaos and havoc are going on. Students are running amok and hurting each other, hurting themselves. 
and there's no counselors to deal with this, right? Um, so, I mean, really, I think there's no way that, I mean, it's, it's just been evident to me that teachers are burning out, students are burning out, being forced to take these tests when they know that they missed out on the last two years of, you know, real serious education, which was already questionable to begin with. Um, but yeah, it's really, it's really a pandemic within a pandemic that, uh, we can, we can't really resolve until we have, you know, I would argue socialism where we can have counselors in every school or more counselors than are needed, right? Counselors for the teachers, uh, therapeutic, uh, uh services for the teachers and students, you know, uh, a less arduous work week, uh, actually trying to develop ourselves as humans and not just, you know, uh, takers and, 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 you know, future workers for capitalists. Um, but yeah, I, I had to take a break from teaching this year just because of, you know, it's, it's really, it's really real. As we have people say, uh, the mental health issues are driving a lot of teachers from, from the field. Um, you see, I was about there. Yeah, and, you know, we've been talking a good bit this hour, Nino, about consciousness in a couple of different ways. And I wanted to touch on that very issue from the standpoint of pop culture and specifically around something that <laughs> we haven't really discussed a lot on, on by any means necessary. And that's, you know, the slap, you know, uh, Will Smith slapping uh, Chris Rock at the uh, Oscars. Now, I think we mentioned it briefly and just kind of moved on because, I mean, I mean, in my perspective, this is just some issue between two rich and famous people that doesn't have uh, much of an impact on anything. But yeah, I think predictably, you know, there was just like an explosion of analysis and over analysis and think pieces and pearl clutching takes and all just kinds of mess. And um, the, the response here, I think, has been pretty interesting. I mean, number one, I mean, Will Smith was banned from uh, uh, the Oscars for 10 years. I mean, you know, uh, uh, back in 1973, you know, when a 26-year-old Native American uh, uh, actress uh, took the stage to talk about um, indigenous issues, she was accepted um, on behalf of Marlon Brando, who had won an award for his role as Vito Corleone, the godfather. John Wayne had to be restrained by bodyguards to keep from attacking her. And, you know, he, he didn't get any kind of ban or whatever. But be that as it may, as a result of this, uh, Netflix and Sony both um, are pausing projects uh, that are uh, led by Will Smith. And in particular, Sony is pausing work on Bad Boys 4, which, if I'm being honest, I'm not sure that movie needs to be made. Uh, personally, I enjoyed uh, the first Bad Boys and Bad Boys 2. I don't really think we needed uh, a third one, and I'm not sure we needed a fourth one. But it's less, for me, Nino, really about sort of the individuals of Will Smith or Chris Rock or whatever, and more about the kind of political substance of popular culture and the, the things that we are told that are important and are deserving of our attention as opposed to, you know, a million other uh, uh, things, right, that, that are actually substantive to, to people's lives. Now, to be sure, people have the capacity to be concerned about uh, multiple things, but I mean, just the fallout and uh, uproar over this whole situation, I found uh, a kind of amazing. And I'm wondering your uh, kind of analysis of it, because I think that you know, this celebrity worship culture that we have in the United States, which I would argue is itself an outgrowth of capitalist culture, is something that is very firmly rooted in the popular consciousness of the United States. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as an organizer, I think about two things primarily. 
the uh, objective conditions and the subjective conditions. The objective conditions are things like that Will Smith smack, right? The changes in the economy, the uh, the budgets, you know, the boom and bust cycle of capitalism, things that are really outside of our direct control, um, but are lay the terrain, the, the political, social, economic, and the mental terrain uh, for us to do battle in, to, for us to struggle in. And then the second half is the subjective conditions, right? Uh, what are we focusing on? What are we, uh, how are we educating? How are we listening? How are we practicing patience? How are we uh, doing outreach and having critical conversations with our people, with our class? So, you know, like I said, Will Smith and Nesmack and, and the, the chatter around it um, are part of the objective conditions. We don't control that. So what we can do is think, well, at a time when people are focusing on this, how can we, you know, talk about the matter as a way to not talk about the matter? How can we use this as a foray into discussions that sorely need to be had? Uh, I think there are, you know, I have my own, like, personal opinions and feelings about Will and, and why he did the smack. And, you know, I, I really don't think he was smacking Chris Rock per se himself. I think it was really, it just so happened to be Chris Rock. You know, I think there were some issues of, you know, patriarchy and, you know, just really built up humiliations and things that he was feeling that led him to feel that he needed to do that. Uh, and those are the conversations that I think, you know, we should have. I mean, as a teacher, I have seen similar things. I've seen students get up and go to other students and hit them. And when you break up the fight and you're like, what is going on? Right. You actually find out what are the actual traumas and issues that are beneath the, the, the spectacle of violence. So really, you know, I think about how can I use this as an opportunity to have a conversation with someone to move their consciousness, given that I don't control whether or not, you know, the media is going to play this thing or not, or whether the media is going to focus on it. They're going to, they're going to, the capitalist media is going to capitalist media. Uh, but a socialist and the socialist organizers have to socialist organize. And I think it's just really waiting in any objective conditions, realizing, well, what is the opening here for me to have a critical conversation with somebody and, and doing just that? The, the the banning of Will Smith. I mean, I think you, I think the hypocrisy really abounds, for one, and uh, and not that it it you know there's this notion out there that well one you know all these other white men uh, have done heinous things in the Oscars, uh, but it doesn't mean that well Will Smith should be or any person should be allowed to do heinous things and get away with it, <clears throat> right? It really just is a foray into the hypocrisy and allows us to try to think about how we can move beyond it. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of what I would say, you know, with that Will Smith smack and how we're still talking about it today. It's just, uh, we have to figure out how to talk about it so as to not talk about it. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting take. And I appreciate that because what we're really talking about, you know, is an opportunity to build with people and to possibly even turn these conversations that people are having because you're correct. We can't help that this becomes, you know, the thing that's sort of a, 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 a social media and, and media and entertainment obsession for however um, long it will last. And it reminds me of, you know, um, I, th- I guess it's been a few years ago at this point when, you know, Beyonce did like the Super Bowl uh, halftime show, I believe it was, with like the Black Panther motifs. And, you know, you know, and there were some people who were upset 
about it or whatever, I guess, because, you know, they see a contradiction between um, Beyonce and, and those kinds of politics, which I suppose I understand. But I remember and I can't remember who it was, but there was some group that was saying, uh, oh, I'm thinking about something different. But that was one example. Another example that, that I was about to mix up with it was um, all the excitement around the movie Black Panther. Now, it's, you know, it, it, it's a superhero movie about a, a fictional African uh, uh, country or whatever that fits into sort of a, a broader Marvel universe. But there was, you know, a group that clearly saw this and was like, okay, well, people are excited to black about Black Panther. Well, well, let's use this as an opportunity to talk about the Black Panthers, the Black Panther Party for self-defense and, um, you know, the, the, the political prisoners that are still incarcerated to this day uh, because of their political activity. And I think that that's just another example of, you know, kind of seizing the moment and sort of using all the energy around um, a, a pop culture moment, if you will, um, to really expand, you know, revolutionary consciousness, which is hard work uh, under a capitalist system that is shot through with uh, uh, ruling class ideas, ideologies and, and sentiments that are just beaming at us on a nonstop basis through uh, entertainment, through the news, the corporate owned media and certainly from the uh, uh, government itself. And uh, as such, when we talk about using these uh, as uh, opportunity, you know, I think that this is really, you know, an example of that kind of uh, a person to person uh, relationship building that is, I think, indispensable to the building of this mass uh, uh, people's movement and organization that we're talking about is needed so Sorely, because I mean, you know, when we're in the course of our organizing efforts, if we think that we're somehow in a bubble and exempt from all these things happening, you know, outside in these other elements of society, then I think that we're um, fooling ourselves. And so it sounds like I'm hearing you say, you know, that instead of, you know, uh, eschewing these things like we're above it, but to instead recontextualize it and turn it into something that then can be used to further enrich um, our organizing efforts. Yeah, definitely. I uh, would agree. I mean, I'm a member of Jericho Movement, a movement to free political prisoners. And I remember when the Black Panther film came out and we organized our members to go and watch the film. Uh, but we went into the theaters with our flyers, uh, you know, about freeing Sundiata Okoli, about freeing Matulu Shakur. Um, and we had people flyering outside the movie. Uh, we said, you know, you, I'm glad you enjoyed the movie, but this is not fiction. It's not a game. We have real Black Panthers who are in prison for decades, right? Um, and that's, you know, obviously, I mean, you'll reach who you reach. Uh, you know, whoever is going through whatever journey at the time that, that you know, gives you a sympathetic air. But if you're not there, then all they get is the propaganda, they don't get any inter interruption of the propaganda. They don't get any alternative idea. Uh, and really bringing that idea that resistance culture, resistance is everywhere, right? Uh, we have to do realm in the battle of ideas. We have to win people's hearts and minds over. Uh, and, you know, it, 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 sometimes it takes doing book studies, right? Definitely studying your history, but also sometimes it takes engaging in the thing that, you know, is being widely popularly talked about but engaging it in a way that is, you know, not one-sided. You know, did you support the smack or are you against the smack? Did you support the Black Panther movie or are you against the movie? It's beyond that, right? It's thinking about, well, what is our objective? Our objective is to move people to make a revolution. So how are they relating to this in this moment, right? And to really 
you know, uh, I think teachers were trained to to think like a nature of the profession. But uh, yeah, I think, um, yeah, just trying to turn those moments into opportunities. Definitely. And what it really says to me is that, you know, as organizers, we have to be flexible. It can't just be a, a, a situation where we're just coming with, you know, a, a deep theory and history and things like that, that that are important. But if we're so full of that, that we can't relate to people, well, then that organizing is going to be that much more difficult. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Nino Brown, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.